You have decided to listen to the ski podcast, and for that we salute you with our ski poles. And it's the only—it's not—it's not Ian. The only saluting we'll be doing um, as uh, we, the podcast, have a new partner. I'll let Ian tell you a little bit more about that in the moment. But as a clue, I'll say that it is a tourist board for a landlocked country, some of the best skiing in the world. But that's all I know about it. Um, things I do know is that eco warrior Ian Martin is my co-host. Hi, Ian. Hi there, Jim. You right? Yeah, very good. First person to own an electric car in the UK. That's a big claim. Uh, not first, but we did have one in uh, 2010. I was going to say, because my milkman definitely had one before that. Um, <laughs> in the show, we have interviews from Chevy Olcott and Jamie Barrow. Ian will be giving his opinion on the London Ski and Snowboard Festival. Got it right? Yes. Um, I have checked out a rival event here in the Alps and... Um, we have supercar chairlifts and super slow camper van camping chat and some of our usual stuff. But first, Ian, tell us about our new partnership with Turkmenistan. <laughs> no, it's another landlocked uh, country. Uh, Switzerland Tourism. I'd really like to thank uh, Switzerland Tourism for coming on board and being a, a partner with us. And they're going to be the, the title uh, partner, but more importantly, it's going to give uh, us the excuse to uh, pop over to Switzerland during the winter and uh, and have a closer look at some of those resorts. Yeah, I'm very excited, Ian. I think I'm going to do some sort of um, work around the Magic Pass, looking at that sort of area um, down on the, doing my compass points west of um, uh, Switzerland, Crans Montana, the Jura Mountains, maybe some of the small resorts at the east of Lake Geneva, maybe a tour up the Rhone Valley. I'm not quite sure. We need to work it all out. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think I might be more in the east of the country. I'm really, I'd really like to go see Andermatt, which I've never uh, skied in. And there's a really interesting story going on there because um, this uh, Egyptian guy has effectively kind of bought the resort and wants to, to kind of upgrade it into a world-class resort. And uh, maybe maybe Engelberg, um, which is another great uh, you know free ride area, big resort. Um, Possibly one of us might get over to the Jungfrau area, uh, Wengen or, uh, or Grindelwald. Um, I believe there's a massive downhill race, not the Inferno in Murren, but um, the Lauberhorn in, in January. If that could fit in, that would be amazing. I know, I'm gonna, I've, um, I've already arranged that, Ian. I'm going to do the Inferno with Cleves Palmer. He heard my review of his book and he is keen, <laughs> to, keen to hang out, I tell you that. Right. Um, shall we kick off the show proper now with some Swiss ski news? How about that? Okay, far away. Have you have you spotted the news then? Uh, well, I noticed that um, Porsche have been designing um, ski lifts um, in the Swiss area. Do you know about that, Ian? Yeah, but I always thought they were called Porsche, not Porsche. Um, tomato, potato, you know, I can't spell anything right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a um, couple of, um, well, a chairlift, Porsche design uh, in a Rosa, uh, six-seater chair, and a gondola in Gestatt uh, that takes uh, 10 people. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind trying those. I'd like to know what you get out of a, a, a Porsche Porsche uh, designed uh, chairlift. Do they go faster, do you think? Um, well, I hope not, because, you know, like a 911, I think, does naught to 104 or 5 seconds. Um, whereas, you know, these ski lifts just do 11 miles an hour. 
I don't yeah. think you really want to have that acceleration. Um, there was a clip a while ago, wasn't it, about that ski lift that went round and round, looked quite dangerous. Yeah. Um, it's not the only, it's not the first Porsche um, lift to go up. It was actually Lax in 2012 that had the first Porsche-designed um, chairlift. But I think it's mainly to do with the chair. So, you know, it's comfy, nice leather seats with um, Wi-Fi and heated yeah, and a bit of and a bit of nice cross-branding uh, there. Certainly in, in Zermatt... Um, Oh, can't remember. Is it the Gantt chair? But they had a Hublot-designed um, lift, and it is super luxurious. Really nice. It's a shame, Ian, that we're not recording this back in the 90s because we could do some really good um, Bulgaria slash Skoda jokes. But <laughs> as we're in the modern day, um, we, we, won't, we won't stoop that, though, will we? No. Um, so, um, you've, been, you've been at the ski show, Ian. Can you tell me what was new and what did you learn? Yeah, well... Ski festival, ski show. Uh, what did I learn? I think I learned that, and there wasn't really a huge amount, you know, new per se, but what I definitely learned is that Serrano Finds is very popular. Like, I went on Friday, and I was thinking, wow, this show is so quiet. Like, where is everyone? And it transpired they were basically all upstairs listening to Serrano Finds give a, a presentation about his life. Uh, and then, actually, on the same day, slightly later on, uh, they were all outside watching Billy Morgan, who uh, just turned up and was um, just kind of freestyling on the uh, on the jump that they uh, had there. So I think that um, you know the big draws were really popular um, with consumers. Um, I did notice that Billy Morgan was walking around the show at one point saying, where is everyone? It's very quiet. And it seemed to coincide with the time that you were doing a talk, um, <laughs> Ian. So, you know, part, one of the big draws as well. Yeah, well, I was. I did do a presentation about Ski Flight Free in the talk zone. And, you know, it was it was really well attended. And I really, uh, you know, enjoyed the opportunity to kind of spread that message a, a little bit more. But I can assure you that the crowd for Serrano Fines' presentation was significantly bigger he will be pleased with that um and did was there anything new any innovations at the ski show that you caught that caught your eye well i've got one that i uh, saw that i really thought mm, that you would like this guy handed me a flyer and it's called handy sos the world's safest button and basically it's like a little uh, kind of key ring thing that you clip presumably on your kid or maybe uh, your husband or wife you want to be able to track them down. You clip it onto your red jacket. And then if they uh, panic, as he put it to me, they can just uh, click it and it instantly gives you where their location is. And I thought, wow, that really is kind of preying on parents' paranoia. Yeah, that is. You should be, uh, I can see some benefits to it. You can buy one for £39.99, the handy OS. If you're listening to this and you're paranoid about kids' safety, then that. That's the uh, sounds to me more like it's just going to be suspicious wives wondering where their husband has gone or suspicious husbands wondering where their wives have gone when she goes, right, I'm going to go and nail that black run. He is holding me back and he'll panic, wonder where she is, click the button. There she will be at the top of uh, the, the mountain and while he's having a nice coffee down the bottom. Wondering yeah. where she is. You know, and disappointingly uh, for you, there weren't any, uh, or I didn't notice any, you know, new devices for carrying your skis or making it easier to walk in skis. Um, I'm sure there probably are. Um, I went to um, the Hi Fi Festival in this period um, since we've not been recording the podcast, Ian, which is down on the lakes of uh, the 
uh, Lake Annecy on the banks, and it was a, a totally different experience. Um, you enter through a massive, beautiful hotel. There's loads of experiences. There was only a small retail village, interestingly enough, which I thought was going to be more predominant, but it's actually quite small. There was a few. It was many skis, and then the rest of the time it was um, resorts down there to promote themselves, but. Everyone had taken on board that, you know, you had to do something. So there was um, loads of stuff for the kids to do. There was slackline areas, trampoline areas, um, skate areas, pump tracks, all those sorts of things. My favourite bit, though, Ian, was um, sitting on this um, uh, jetty that they built into the lake and just watching movies while drinking a nice beer. That sounds great. Um, yeah, it's Did nice. Did your kids go along as well or, or was it just you? Uh, no, I went down there with a friend because um, we uh, wanted to hang out with each other and not our children. So it was quite nice. Uh, they had rubbish on ice cream as well, which I liked. Really? Okay. And there was a massive stage. And um, I know the, the ski show puts on an outbreak ski night, don't they? Yeah. This one, um, it was uh, three, I assume they were quite big, French hip-hop acts, um, which, you know, as you can imagine, I was pretty down with. Um <laughs> But I don't know, something about hip-hop I find really, um, you know, kind of camp in a way. You, you feel it should be like this masculine thing with all the, what they're talking about, but it's very blingy and quite camp, which I quite enjoy and find it secretly amusing. But um, I digress. Um, <laughs> what was there So any... Hi-Fi Festival then, we, we wondered whether uh, locals kind of uh, dismiss it as being the same thing year after year. What, what... I know you haven't been there before, but um, did you think it had, you know, that kind of vibrancy and, I don't know, energy? Yeah, there was loads of energy there. Um, yeah, there's loads of energy there. Um, and, you know, there were huge, it was really well attended. It was over four days. It was only 10 euros for the entire weekend if you wanted to go. Wow. And like I say, there was a huge amount to do. Um, if you're interested in the, the musical acts that they were there, they were good. Um and yeah, there was always something going on. It felt very more festivally than I would say the, the ski show um, feels festively. Right. But then it's a bigger yeah, I mean, beast. Do you think the... they've, obviously got a, they've obviously got a natural advantage because you're saying you're sitting there beside the lake. So mm. presumably, what, you, can you see the mountains in the background? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, Battersea doesn't really have that, does it? No, it doesn't. And um there's just something because it, it wasn't in a. I think my my problem is, and it's nothing to do with the the London Ski Show Festival. It's not their fault. It's the way they have to do it. I just really hate convention centres. <laughs> I find them really. Right. I find them really depressing, and I think that's probably one of my big issues about going to any trade show. I don't like convention centres. Yeah, I mean, I actually think Battersea Evolution. I know it. It's a place where you put on exhibitions, but the outside area. Um, oh, it's much better does, than Earl's Court too. It's in a park, and they had you know huskies there, and you could do Nordic skiing, and they had a jump with snow. So I think for the centre of London, it was it was you know recreated the out pretty well. It just happens to be uh, you know slightly you know not quite the same as being in the mountains. No, and um, like I say, I think they're different things as well because, you know, this was about... It was really for um, a quite a localised population because it was about the, the ski resorts that you could reach in the area, but far bigger than I imagined. It was very, very good. But while yeah. you were at your ski show, Ian, um, you, I, didn't, I didn't chat to anyone. Um, you caught up with a few celebrities. Um, here is Ian's first chat with Jamie Barrow, a man who loves being towed behind a car. 
So I'm uh, here at the uh, London Ski Festival with Jamie Barrow, who long-term listeners will remember. We interviewed him about his amazing trip to North Korea. Um, but uh, he's not uh, uh, stopping there. Got more records planned for this winter, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a few things planned this year. It's going to be a busy one for me. I've been planning it all of the past season, so yeah. it's been a good one. I've, um, the biggest one I'm going to be planning is to break the Guinness World Record for the fastest speed on a snowboard towed by in a vehicle. Okay. Now, this is a record I've already beat before, but every single time I've done it, I've always been let down by something, so either not having a long enough track or not a fast enough car. Yeah. So I've now started from square one, and I've just found a new location with a track four times the length. Uh, and where is the location? This is in Norway, so the middle of Norway, near Beitestolen, um, yeah. in Norway, and it's on a frozen lake. Yeah. Out there, and uh, we, they're making us a four kilometer long track. Okay, and what sort of car will you be behind then? I can't announce it yet. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> we want that exclusive. It's, it's not even been released yet. Okay. Um, oh. But it's it's an interesting car. We're hoping. Well, if it works out and the timing, it's going to be an electric car. Right. Okay. Um, but. We'll have spikes on the tires or so something. We've got studded tires. Yeah. Um, and the track is being made specially for us. Um, so that we have a uh, so it's because uh, the car needs ice with studded tires to yep. grip, whereas I need snow. So the yep. track's being specially made, so it's the perfect combination of having it just enough that the car can still get grip, yeah. so having enough snow on it for me to be able to get grip and yeah. control myself. Okay. So there's a lot of science behind it that people don't think, and I'm actually going to be, I'm filming a series uh, at the moment about all about how to break a world record. <laughs> right. people think when it comes around to this record okay. that it's, it's generally just tying a rope to the back of a car and going, yeah. but it's not. There is so much behind it, everything from location scouting to getting the right equipment yeah. to your physical training and mental training for this sort of so I'm filming a whole series about that. And, and also, something you actually mentioned to me before we started talking is you said that for that speed record, it's not simply how fast you can go against a single speed gun. It's more complicated than that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's really complicated. Guinness yeah. World Records really try to make it as hard as possible <laughs> for you to actually break these records. But rightfully so. Some of the things, they want to make sure that yeah. it's done properly and it can be counted for. So for this record, it isn't just simply going straight down and you see what speed it is on the, the speedometer on yeah. your car. It is actually run by, uh, you have to do two runs, one run in each direction, yeah, and then it's the average speed of the two runs, which make it, uh, okay. which makes the record. Well, why would you do so that? So the reason why you're doing that is because they want to make sure you're not going down a hill on the first run. Okay. And so they want to make it show it's just the car pulling you. So you do it in both directions. That proves that you're not going down a yeah. hill. Um, and then the speed itself is measured over 100 meters. Um, okay. Because of the accuracy of the timing equipment, if you have it too quick, yep. the accuracy will be, the errors will be a lot And higher. you have to have, uh, you know, competition quality timing equipment yeah, for this sort of thing. Yeah, you have to have laser timing down to like the 200th of a second right. uh, timing equipment with qualified people okay. doing it. You also need filming of the whole event yep. for non-stop. Yep. You, need you know, as it goes, I, I have a, a slight insight into this because when I was working with uh, one of my previous clients, Profi, 
we broke the world record for running 100 meters in ski boots. Oh, right. And we did it in a track fairly near here. And we had to have all of those things. We had to have the timing equipment. We had to film it from two different angles, I think, was yeah. the thing as well. Yeah. Various other witnesses uh, as well. So it's, yeah, you know, there are a lot of hoops, as you say, rightfully so. It is, it is, really, it is really hard. There are a lot of hoops. But now try to imagine doing that in the middle <laughs> of nowhere, in the middle of Norway, yeah. on a four-kilometre-long track to get yeah. enough footage to go across the whole yeah. thing. Well, when is it going to crop up, Jamie? So it's going to have an uh, end of January is when I'm doing the record, yeah. uh, and I'm, but I'm starting actually to release the series actually in November. Okay, where will episodes. people find that? All then? up on YouTube. If you search Jamie Barrow, okay. um, you should be able to get it up on there, and you can follow me on Instagram, cool. Jamie Barrow underscore GB. All right, Jamie, good to speak to you as always, and best of luck. Perfect. Thanks <laughs> a lot. Well, that's an exciting project he's got, Ian. Um, I've got a record that you could probably break, though. Go on. Um, the fastest marathon dressed as a snowboarder. How fast can you... Oh, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, how fast can you do a marathon? Um, 3.14. Um, so this the record was set this year by James Williams uh, at the Virgin London Marathon on April the 28th. And he did it in 5 minutes, 21, 50 seconds, um, dressed as a snowboarder. Do you think it would make you slower dressed as a snowboarder, Ian? Well, they all have all of these Olympic uh, Guinness records have very specific rules about what you have to wear. So I'm sure you'll be a lot slower. Yeah, but I just thought maybe it's one for you to do easily attainable. Although I know the conversation was about them not being that easily attainable. (laughs) Yeah, well, Jamie, Jamie Barrow and his record breaking, he never stops, does he? Because regular listeners to the show will know that we featured him in episode four and episode 24. And every year he's, you know, up for some kind of record. In fact, just for the listener, go back and listen to episode four, because that's when we interviewed him uh, when he went to uh, about his trip to North Korea, which is not necessarily about records, but an incredible trip. Yeah, it was um, it was an incredible trip and well worth um, listening to. Um, Ian, who else did you hang out with at the ski show? Uh, well, I met I met up with Chemi Alcott. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Inferno, uh, which uh, <laughs> you're going to do in uh, in Marin during the uh, winter. She's actually going out to the Inferno uh, this year. I think she's going to be filming it for Ski Sunday. So we'll get a, a bit of a perspective. She was explaining to me how she's going to ski it four times to get all the right camera angles and this and that. But while we were chatting, she, she actually told me about, you know, she had a uh, second baby earlier this year. She was telling me about when you're racing, all the different degrees of weight change that you have to go through for uh, for different races. So, is, you know, did your experience racing on the World Cup uh, and, the, and the Olympic circuit where you had to, sometimes you had to kind of increase your weight and sometimes yeah. you had to drop yeah. your weight to yeah. optimise for different courses? Because it's to do yeah. with, you know, exactly how much gliding yeah. you have and yeah. how much downhill. Yeah. Do you think all of that helped you get back into shape now does that fit in with what you're talking about before your body's used to changing i think no i think you have a natural body weight and everyone knows it you know you get to a certain point you can't lose weight and that's that's where you should be if you start losing weight it's by unhealthy measures or not eating or starving yourself so there is a certain weight that we're all supposed to be so when i was an athlete that was quite challenging because we looked at the olympic track every four years and went right there's loads of undulating terrain it's super agile you've got to be really on top of it um you've got to be 
quick with your pressure. So you didn't want that heavy body mass. Yeah. And then the next track, four years later, it would be steep to flat, and you wanted to have that gravity pull you through the flats. Yeah. So then I wanted to get bigger. So my weight as an athlete fluctuated from 69 kilos to I was trying for 83. That's right. my aim. Okay. And that yeah. is massive. That's a kind of, a, you know, I'm thinking Huge. about, uh, you know, actors who uh, yeah, yeah, go yeah. through big body changes yeah. to suit a particular exactly. role. I and mean, in some respects, it's the same a bit more thing. fortunate because sometimes they just need to get bigger so they can eat, whereas yeah. mine had to be yeah. muscle. And what was the, uh, so what would a, a, a course be where you had to be uh, heavier? You're saying it's a steeper course. Um, so, so steeper is steep to flat. So Sochi, yeah. Yeah. Our, our last race in Sochi, I don't even remember, out of the start gate, it was really steep. Yeah. And then it went really flat. Then right. it went steep again and then really flat. Right, okay. So something like that, you want to be heavier. Yeah. Whereas Vancouver, there was so much terrain, there were side walls. Yeah. Um, you wanted to be lighter, really agile. Yeah. And obviously and it must... depends on the discipline you're focusing on as well. Of course, well. yeah. And that must uh, you know, impact during the season as well, because you would go to a race, like Lake Louise was always, uh, I think, one that you enjoyed uh, yeah. competing at. And you'd go to a race like that in, the, uh, in, the, in a physical shape for a different sort of course. Would that be the case? Sometimes you'd yeah, yeah. I mean, be maybe frustrated because... Oh, for sure. You had to be really honest with yourself, and that's what's really hard with the, the mental health of being a ski racer or a snow sports, because yeah. you are, you know that you're going to be suited to different tracks, but also different snow types. Yeah. You know, I could not ski grippy snow. That Colorado cold grippy hero snow, I can't ski it. I'm too aggressive. Right. I'm too strong on my edges. I've got no finesse. So that was always going to bite me in the ass. Right. And then I would go somewhere else and later on in the season where it was that kind of frozen ice and I knew that that was better for me. Okay. So I could use that brute force. Yeah, there won't be many skiers. But, uh, but uh, having said that, the very elite level, the Lindsay Bonds, they can ski everything. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can get over it and you yeah. can tune your challenge. I, I, I probably won't speak to many skiers this season or anyone listening to the podcast is unlikely to... Uh, to say, oh, I'm much better at skiing on ice <laughs> and uh, yeah. hard back than, uh, than anything I else. I mean, I didn't enjoy it as much. I definitely yeah. enjoyed the grippy snow, but every time I got to the bottom and I had, it was grippy snow, yeah. I'd look at that time because I thought I'd had the run of my life and I'd look and I'd realise that was dog slow because I overturned because right. I couldn't get off my edges. Okay. So that's why it was harder to ski on ice, but it was always better for me yeah. than my times. Okay. So essentially that's the same as um, us going for a gentle blue run ski in the morning, having a massive fondue in the afternoon and then trying to smash some records by tackling a steep black run in the afternoon. Is that right? Yeah, on a on a bigger time scale, uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I just found that was a really interesting insight. You don't tend to think about this. Well, I didn't. I never tended to think about that sort of thing. And, you know, to get an insight into the, the world of a you know, someone who competes on the Olympic or World Cup circuit is is pretty interesting. I think um, it would be good to be able to eat. Now, she couldn't eat, could she? That was what she was saying. She was um, had to build up her muscles. Um, so it was quite a challenge, yeah. Yeah, and we got other interviews again, listener. You can, you can listen to uh, Chemi talking about, uh, well, the gender divide in skiing in episode 24 and episode 25 of the podcast if you want to go back and listen to them thanks shemi always got good stuff to say um now for non-olympians this is the same uh what that's not what i meant to say in good job we're not doing it live isn't it um oh yeah i was going to say i wanted to move away from elite athletes to the more enthusiastic skier now yeah um a few podcasts ago um we were talking about camper vans yes and camper vanning in the alps 
you know, this is uh, this has got quite an um, interesting response. Um, one of the things it actually did do, Ian, is uh, my friend Spanky, who I mentioned in that, um, who lives in New Zealand, and, um, you know, we don't talk as much as we used to, um, although he was the best man at my wedding. It, it forced him to get in touch to say he always listens to the podcast. <laughs> and right. uh, was uh, he was upset that we referred to him as a crusty, which I kindly pointed out that he could never be a crusty because if he tried to have dreads in those hair, it'd probably fall out. He's basically bold so um i'm sure that'll encourage him to say hello again the other people that got in touch Ian, were the people from winterized um and i had a really lengthy interview with her um and we spoke for a long time and here are some of the highlights of the chat okay so i've got hannah uh, on the line with me right now she's from uh, the project of the website winterized uh, winterized.com you can find her at and she's here to set the record straight um, and tell me that um, camper vanning in the Alps during the winter isn't just for crusty people um, who uh, just live in car parks. It's not the case, I believe. And she's going to set me straight on that. Before we start, Hannah, I want to ask you one question. Um, what's, uh, what's the longest you've been in a camper van while skiing in a row where you've only had a wet white wash? Uh, 70 days. That too, it, <laughs> 70 days. The sad thing is I wet actually know that fact. <laughs> So um, set me straight. You're not you're not all crusties, are you? Not on purpose. You sound like a very nice person. <laughs> not on purpose. We're not. Uh, there are people who are sort of typical van dwellers, as you kind of would imagine, living in n- nasty old sprinters that are falling apart. But for the most part, there's a huge spread of people. Um, you know, if you go to a, an air, which is a glorified car park in the Alps. Say Mont Genève, you're likely to see an average price of a motorhome around ninety to one hundred and twenty thousand euros. So it's, it's it's not all crusties and people lurking in weird corners of the Alps. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm glad we cleared it up. It's actually just really wealthy people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a huge um, gathering of Extinction Rebellion people who want to go skiing. Right, um, let's start where it all started. So this website, this um, project of yours is fairly new. Um, I believe you've not been into particularly skiing and motorhoming as a combined thing for that long, but suddenly you have had an experience and it's changed your life. Tell me about how this project started. It was a complete accident, really. Um, I'd had best part of 20 years away from the slopes having had an injury and life got in the way and uh, I ended up um, being cajoled into a group ski ski trip in January 2017 got hooked again managed to work some skiing into my work life Um, I was working motor racing at the time and I managed to convince people that I needed to drive to Milan, for example, or Geneva, for example, um, for some of the events that I was taking part in. And I managed to sneak a bit of skiing in at the time. Once we'd come back from those various trips, we decided, uh, this was me and my partner, James, that we wanted to do a lot more of it. And having both been keen to do a ski season from when we were sort of younger, but it never really panning out. Uh, we decided to take a grown-up gap year. So this just sounds like a baptism of fire, a full-on season in a camper van. Yeah, with little to no experience. I must caveat that 
James, my partner, had never been on a set of skis or a snowboard in his life at this point, but he thought the idea was rather marvellous. This is um, this is an exciting story. Where did you start? Did you stay in one place? No, um, I think probably we covered 58 different park-up locations um, across the entire season. We did actually bow out in mid-April um, and we went to Fontainebleau south of Paris to do some climbing um which is James's thing um so that was the that sort of culminated the end of the season um but we we clocked up some park ups um and went to a lot of places a lot of them were enforced we had aimed to ski 30 to 35 different locations and mm-hmm. I think we got up to 42 wow ski air ski areas ski stations um so yeah, we we did okay. Um, we did okay, but some of the enforced moves were due to some fairly severe weather in that season, which uh, forced us down mountains, across mountains, into different countries, uh, taking some time out to fix broken motorhomes. So yeah. <laughs> so what you'd wake up in the middle of the night um, with a snowdrift pushing your your van almost over and decide I think we should get out of here and head down to some safety is that was that what happened uh we were very much more prepared than that thankfully because one of the things that most motorhome skiers are is a bit techy and you'll find that they have all of the very high-tech um weather apps and all of the things a little bit one step above the average skier in terms of um like the professionalness of these apps and it's primarily because you can get yourself into an awful lot of trouble if you don't plan ahead. Um, but I will say we, we came close to a few scary moments and m- more than falling off cliffs, you tend to find yourself a bit worried about freezing to death at minus 25 with no heating or such like. You're really selling it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love I like camper banning. I've done a lot of it. We um, we hired one of those awful, wicked camper vans across the name of camper vans. They're just mattresses in the backs of vans in Australia. Um, and we headed up to the mountains and we soon found out it was quite cold in the back of a van uh, and ended up um, seeking refuge. Um, and we did New Zealand as well, where we had heating in our camper van. So, you know, I'm I'm on board with this adventure and it is an adventure, right? Absolutely, it is. Uh, James had um, lobbed a mattress in the back of some sort of pickup truck or something that he'd um, uh, when he'd been touring in New Zealand uh, a few years ago. So he was already um, a bit of a crusty tourer bum. Um, but that's not how I wanted to do it. Um, and much to our uh, surprise and pleasure, there is a huge scene around motorhome skiing, and uh, there are a lot of fans very well equipped. And that's everything from you kind of uh, VW California type surf fan all the way up to these huge palatial um, land yachts um, and almost everything in between. And there is something definitely for everyone. And yes, if you do not go with the right equipment and the right kind of van, you're going to be cold. Uh, but it's not it's not insurmountable. And I think that's the one thing. You know, listening to your previous podcast um, about trying to reduce the amount of uh, flight time people are doing, there is a growing number. There are a growing number of people who already have camper vans who don't know this is open to them. They're also skiers. So, um, you know, our push is to make sure people um, know what they can do, can find things. 
um, easily and don't make a mess of it, essentially, because you could put you could put people off. It's quite easy to put people off the idea of being in a car up a mountain at minus 25 with all your wet kit and your family and your stinking dog. And, you know, but there are very easy ways to do it. For some reason, I've got this um, imagination it's sprung into my head. It's like a convoy of you with your different different levels of camper vans, almost like the film Twister for some reason. That, that's what I'm imagining, um, but I'm sure that's it, not true. Do you know what? It's kind of like that. It is kind of like that because um, there it is a leveller. There's one thing that very clear to us straight away is that it's a cultural leveller. Um, there is no haves and have-nots. Um, it's a very inclusive culture where people who need help in little California camper vans will get help from people in huge great rigs that are very luxurious or massive trucks that have got wood burners, log burners in them and things like that. It's, it's kind of a real, it's a really weird community, but it's, it's very cool. All right. Right. Let's, um, let's have some more questions about this. I want to know yep. what's it like, you know, you're in, you're in Lazark for, and then suddenly it comes on the radar and it sparks up, it lights up and it says, Oh, there's going to be deep snow. Um, all the way over, I don't know, um, <clears throat> in the Dolomites or something. Can you know, is that possible? Can you get in the van, get straight over there? Is that the sort of thing you do? Absolutely. We did that on a number of occasions. Um, and we also did a good job of just about missing it every single time for the first sort of month or so, which was very frustrating until we perfected our technique and the timings. Uh, really, what you do at that point is you pack up. You're always sort of ready to go anyway, but you pack up shove everything in the back of the van and get on the road i mean from les arc to the dolomites you're only looking at sort of an overnight drive mm -hmm. so so you can be uh from borg all the way over to i'm um, just trying to think where the best airs are um there are there are quite a few um over in the dolomites particularly on the italian side are really really nice areas uh in probably 15 hours in a big motorhome very easy roads no trouble uh, take it in turns to drive through the night and you're up for a uh, first lift in the morning. I suppose you've got breakfast in the back. It's all pretty straightforward. Super straightforward. There's no messing around and you've got your own kit, your own skis. Uh, with the way ski passes are now um, online, you can almost do it in advance. Just before you go, what's your what's next winter? What's your trip? Uh, this winter coming, so uh, 1920, we're actually doing a focus on Scotland. Ooh. Yeah, big reason for that is we have uh, two 10-month-old puppies that we rescued from the Pyrenees last winter. Were they, were they lost? We have... So, say again? Were they lost? Why did you rescue puppies were... from the Pyrenees? Uh, because they were facing a somewhat um, doomed future. Okay. So we lobbed them in the back of our pickup truck and stole them away. Your puppy thieves, um, I see. Yeah, we are bona fide thieves, and they've actually got our names on them now. They're French, um, which is good for us because it means it makes travel post this end of this week um, easier than it would be if they were registered in the UK. Oh, yeah. But travel with pets is going to become more complicated. A huge number of people in motomes actually travel in motomes because they have pets, and it's easy. Um, so we decided to focus on Scotland this winter um so it makes it easy it is also a great way for people to test the water 
and find out just how capable their own motorhomes or camper vans are or how, how capable they are and how much they would enjoy it um, because there is a lot of admin. Um, it isn't just open the door and lob all your stuff on the side and have a drink. Um, and hopefully we'll get some good skiing done. We're really looking to get into backcountry. So it's a perfect opportunity for us to spend some time up there and find out what Scotland really has to offer from a from a skiing perspective. Well, I really hope you send us. Um, I will speak to you at the end of that trip. I think that'll be interesting to hear if um, if you're happy to come back and talk about that. Absolutely. I mean, ho- hopefully, um, it's we're going to find lots of places to park. The beauty of Scotland is that um, you can wild camp. It's completely legal. So, so long as you're not within, I can't remember what it is, however many metres of uh, a residential property, you can park up. Um, so that's going to be great fun to, to kind of get into the wilds a little bit. Well, I hope you have a really lovely trip. Hannah, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, and like I say, we'll have you back at the end of uh, your Scottish trip to find out more. Fabulous! Thank you very much for having us. Cheers. So in that, Ian, I mean, it was it was um, it was a long chat we had, and I think um, we might have the second part of that later on in the season. That's more an introduction of um, uh, how they got into camper vanning in the Alps and how they developed this project um, winterized that they're doing. Um, and then there's some more facts uh, later on, which I'll put into a, in another podcast in a few weeks' time. How does that sound? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Uh, as a motorhome owner, although I haven't done it out in the Alps, I'm, I'm always interested in that sort of thing. Well, saying that, Ian, actually, one of the things that is not included in that interview was one of her the best tips that she gave me was that if you want to get into it now or, you know, in the winter, it's a really good time because the hire shops um, have a load of camper vans, especially in Germany where, you know, popular place to hire camper vans. Um, and it's really cheap this time of year to hire them because... Their main um, season is in the summer, so they have an excess amount of camper vans, so they drop the price very low to try and um, encourage people to hire them in the winter. So if you want to try it out, um, it's a good option. Okay, good tip. Uh, uh, More information can be found at winterized.com. Moving on, Ian, reviews. We must have some reviews. We've not been on the air for quite a while. Well, we have, actually. Um, I noticed this review from one of our... (laughs) You said that that very... You said that very somberly, Ian. We <laughs> well, uh, we get, you know, I think um, last time I looked at the stats, about um, 18, 20% of our listeners are in the States. So um, hello, listener, if you're in the uh, States. And um, SD Star uh, said, uh, gave us a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts. A great show filled with information about far-flung skiing locations like Japan, Georgia, the Pyrenees and the Alps. He says, I'd love to hear about uh, skiing in Scandinavia, New Zealand and South America, if you get the chance. Uh, I think you've got just the right focus for your podcast. I don't think you should add gear reviews. I can't remember. We, we obviously must have discussed that at some point. Um, uh, he thinks gear reviews are too specific um, for a general podcast audience. So uh, thanks very much. It could be, actually, I said he could be a male or female. SD star for your review. Yeah, good one. There was um, also a review from uh, Frank Safry. Um, he says, having gone back and listened to all of your backcasts, I like that word, yeah. backcasts. Um, and he's also have a, he's lived his entire adult life in Japan and is pleased to have some good exposure here. Um, I think he's mainly referring to episode 41, which was our last podcast where we talked a lot about Japan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, good to hear from you, Frank. Thank you. 
Uh, we've also got a linking into Japan. Michael Berry, I think he contacted us uh, via uh, Facebook. He said, uh, I've just sent the link to my son, Jack, uh, Jack Berry, uh, who's off to Niseko for the season. So he's obviously referring to the, the uh, Japan uh, episode as well, which is episode uh, 41. Oh, it's lovely, Ian, to hear someone finally taking my advice to share this podcast with their cool ski friends. Ah, yeah. And I think you got an email from um, someone called Frankie who works at Ingham's. And that was the reason we talked about the podcast uh, um, uh, Japan last week. Um, is she cross with us, Ian? Or is she happy with us? No, not at all. I think, you know, your interview uh, there with Mike was really interesting. He pointed out that if you're going to, you know, one of those resorts like... Uh, Hakuba, um, then seven days isn't a very long trip. And that's how Ingham's have packaged it up. And she actually said, uh, she said, it was great to listen to your Japan um, expert. That's, um, that's Mike. Fascinating. She does point out that the uh, trips to Japan um, can be longer than seven nights if guests prefer. I think possibly, if you look at the price, it comes in just under £2,000. So I think seven days, they decided that would be a good price point to try and sell it. So the fact still remains, probably if you're going to Japan, it's worth going for longer than seven days or seven nights. Definitely. I'm always up for longer trips. That's my policy in life. Go for as long as you can get away with. Oh, good reviews, Ian. I wonder if we'll get um, even more in this period to the next podcast. Do feel free to review us. Do it on iTunes, on our Facebook page, or you know, just email us a nice personal message. And there are other ways to get in touch with the show. You can find us on Twitter at the Ski Podcast. You can email Jim at the Ski Podcast.com or Ian at the Ski Podcast.com. All that information you will find on our website, the Ski Podcast.co.uk. And if you want to follow our personal rantings on the internet, you can find Ian on Twitter at Skipedia, or you can look at, uh, it's not much ski photos, but you can look at um, pictures of the mountains with a little bit of snow on. Or my Instagram page at the average skier. Um, we did have uh, we often get a we have a Jim and ask Jim and Ian section. Um, it's been going quite well, I think, Ian. Don't you? Uh, yeah. Hopefully, we're uh, we're answering a few questions and helping people. Um, we had one. Had one. We've got one, Ian, but I'm not sure we can actually answer it. How do you feel about it? Um, someone asked us, "How do you spot a good-looking helmet?" And yeah. I just, I just think it's not about good looking, is it? Is it about how it fits your goggles, how it fits your head, and is it comfy, right? I think those things are right. How it, yeah, how it fits you on the inside. Although we have to point out at this stage that you definitely need to uh, avoid the goggle gap. Yep, um, I think some people call it the punter gap, but I'm <laughs> pretty sure I've seen plenty of seasoners with ill-fitting goggles and hel- helmets. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just it just doesn't look good, does it? Having that big space on your forehead between your goggles and your helmet. Some people do actually um, try and uh, get rid of that gap by filling it with just clumps of snow by face planting. Um, <laughs> I think that's a that's a really good way of getting around um, that issue if you do suffer from that. Yeah. How do you fall on wearing sunnies with a helmet? Uh, I think that's fine. Absolutely acceptable. Do you? Yeah, do you not? Okay. No, I mean, I think if you're wearing a helmet, you have to wear goggles. I don't think sunglasses work with a helmet. Hang on. I don't mean Uh, it's aesthetic apart from anything else, but it just doesn't, 
just doesn't look right. Well, if you um, are you talking about having no goggles? Because I always have the goggles on my helmet, and I will wear sunglasses. You know, when I'm pootling around with children, not going very fast, or sat yeah. on a chairlift. But I don't. I don't. I would never go out with a gog- helmet without goggles. Is that what you're saying? I think the only time to wear sunnies when you're wearing a helmet is maybe when you're going up the lift. Okay. What about wearing covers on your helmet to make you look like a squirrel? That's not something I've ever tried or will be trying. I think I did um, I did have an issue with this in our last episode or an episode before. And some kind soul called Matt Hayes sent me um, a direct message on my Instagram um, with some horrific looking helmet heads um, from a company yeah. called Helmet Heads. And, you know, if Helmet Heads wants to sponsor the show, I'll give you as much coverage as you like. It just won't be positive. Um, I don't <laughs> see any need for it. But I also did say to him, you know what? These people, if it makes them happy when they're skiing, who am I to complain about it? I'm just never going to do it mm. myself. Yeah. And then it... So, you know, that's my opinion. Is it comfy? There we go. Do, do okay. you think that was a helpful bit of consumerism? Well, probably not that, Consumer that helpful. Maybe we'll ask uh, uh, someone who knows more about, I don't know, helmets, whether they're good, it, more than good looking, whether they're practical. Hey, I've got something to throw in that I only saw this morning. It's not on our uh, uh, our, our uh, disc- show notes uh, at all. And it is that of all the French resorts last season, can you guess which one had the uh, the most uh, snowfall, the most accumulated snow? The, uh, the French. Is that, was that the question? Yeah, the French? in France, not just the Alps. Hmm. Am I looking for a high resort? Uh, probably not as high as uh, as you would think. As always, it's one that has its own microclimate. They all oh. have their own microclimate, don't they? Um, is it a big popular resort? Nope. Ooh, right then. Um, is it definitely in the? It's in the French Alps. Oh, I don't know. Um, let's say. Um, Ooh, Sir Chevalier. I don't know the answer. Sir Chevalier isn't in the uh, top 10. In the top 10, a few big resorts like uh, Teen and La Plan, Val d'Isère and Val Terrens. But top of the list is Les Contamine. According to uh, this thing that I saw this morning, 543 centimetres of, uh, of snowfall last season made Les Contamine the, uh, the top resort in France for snowfall. And it happens that last season I skied in Lake Contamine for the first time ever. And I was really, really impressed with the uh, with the off-piste there. I was actually being guided around by a couple of friends, which made it kind of even better. And, uh, you know, I, to me, I think if that's not a recommendation, Contamine is tucked away around the back of uh, Mont Blanc. Other, you know, on the other side from Chamonix, um, you know, if you went over the hill from there, you'd end up in Bourg Saint-Maurice. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lake Contamine, possibly a little kind of a hidden gem. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Maybe I will. Get I, I, I will tweet that list so you can uh, have a look at it and listener, I, uh, you, I, you can I, have a look at it as well. I think I might even get a free day there on my lift pass this winter. I will go. Yeah. Right, cool. That, that is a good recommendation. Um, not some stuff that's still on our notes, Ian. Um, you want to talk about stats on listeners? What do you, what do you want to tell us? 
Well, I, f- I found that uh, you know really interesting as well. I was just looking through some of the uh, stats, and you know, in the last thirty days, every single one of our fifty-seven episodes has been listened to uh, at least I think it was five times. You know, so people are going right back to. Uh, in fact, it's the Olympic episodes that are the uh, the kind of least listened to, but they've all been listened to. And uh, episode one, uh, which we did two years over two years ago now had um, over 30 people listen to it in the last 30 days, uh, including me. I listened to it as well. Uh, love a bit of nostalgia. And um, I thought it was it was pretty good. Some of the sound quality in some of our early ones, you know, wasn't uh, brilliant. Remember the Vanessa being a, a Dalek in one of them. Uh, but, you know, so Kat, what I'm saying is, uh, listener, if you're enjoying this, go back and listen to the old ones because plenty of other people uh, are as well. Have you got a favourite old episode, Ian? I still like... I found that when we discussed drug dealers in Courcheval, that was very interesting. But I really like the one about wolves. I can't remember what episode that was now, when we talked about, uh, you know, wolves in the Alps. Um, you, you remember that one? Yeah, I remember that one. It's yeah, an interesting fact. I, I, still, I, still, I still quote facts about that to other people, Ian. Yeah, what about yourself? Do you have a favourite? Well, I think I like the one where I went to the Three Valleys and I spent. I put um, a guy uh, did got some recommendations and did some runs and um, uh, clipped on a mic and tried to describe them as we went. I quite enjoyed that one. Yeah, I, I uh, do recall you doing that, and I know you love doing that kind of a uh, feature. And maybe this winter, well, I think almost certainly you'll be doing that from somewhere in Switzerland. I should think. Absolutely. And, you know, I looked at the stats as well. It's nice to see that we've got such a global audience, isn't it? You mentioned we've got a lot of uh, American listeners, but, you know, at least 1% of our listeners um, come from France. That's good, isn't it? More, well, and, yeah, more than that. I think. But they're all, all over the world, aren't they? As you say, like down under, you mentioned New Zealand. I don't know if that 1% of listeners is, is just your mate. <laughs> I, think, I, think it, I think it probably Thank is. You, him, him and, a, him and a, a couple of others. But, you know, there are, yeah, listeners down in New Zealand, quite a lot of listeners in Australia as well, in Japan, uh, UAE, yeah, all over the world. So if that's you, listener, you know, and you're in a, a far fun place, like who was it who, um, wasn't there someone in, in the Maldives who... who yeah, he was on... Um, yeah, he asked us about single travel skiing. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. asked, yeah. So, you know, if you're a listener right now and you're in a far-flung place around the world, come and, you know, drop us a, a, an email or tweet us or put a message on the Facebook page. We'd love to hear about it. We would indeed. Well, Ian, I think it's time to wrap up. And okay. um, that is pretty good. It was a good episode. I enjoyed it. I'm a bit sad, Ian. We nearly, we nearly made it to the end of the podcast without mentioning the Three Valleys, but you had to drop in Val Torrens in that top 10 snow list. <laughs> Right, sorry. I thought, I thought we were going to do it, Ian, but no. That is uh, our challenge for next week, to next time, to try and not mention the three valleys. But what we can talk about lots more is Swiss tourism. Thank you very much, Swiss tourism, for sponsoring the podcast. Ian, I will see you next time. Yeah, cool. All right, good to speak to you, uh, uh, Jim. And, uh, yeah, I'll speak to you in a, in a few weeks' time.